This is Dominic Preziosi, editor of Commonweal. It's a new year, our centennial year, and we'll be introducing some new features here on the podcast, starting with this episode. About a month ago, Commonweal hosted a book launch in New York City with poet Christian Wyman, whose new book, Zero at the Bone, 50 Entries Against Despair, a mixture of poetry, essays, quotations, and close readings, is available now from FSG. The former editor of Poetry Magazine and now a professor at Yale Divinity School, Wyman has long been an admirer of Commonweal, and as he told the audience, he dutifully reads every issue cover to cover. So on this episode, we're featuring some of the conversation from that evening, including Christian reading and discussing his poetry and his interview with Commonweal senior editor Matthew Boudway. That's coming right up on the Commonweal podcast. This first poem is called So True to a Roar. Sometimes you can realize in your life that you're uh, kind of wincing at life or grimacing at life, that everything is a kind of against. You're going against it, and then something wakes you up and makes you think, well, what am I fighting so hard against? And this poem articulates that for me. So trued to a roar, so accustomed to a grimace of against, I hardly notice it was over. Like an invalid, I crept out into the open, since when was there an open? And like a revenant lipped the names of things turned things again, white pine, quaking aspen, shagbark that by all rights should have been shorn. Was it for this, I asked, since when was there someone to ask that I was born? No answer, unless of leaves acquiring light and small lives going about their business of being less. And on the clear pond and in the clearer beyond, the mean of a man unraptured back to man. This poem's called Reading Pascal in Quarantine. The first line is really from Pascal. I could have just stolen it, not even admitted it. I really think of the poem, though, as related to Paul Ricoeur. He talks about the idea of discovering secondary innocence in the religious life, that you need to somehow pass through experience to acquire another kind of naivete, where you can be as naive in your response to God as you once were, perhaps, as a child is, but of course it's completely changed. It's a different kind of innocence. He also said that he thought of his Christianity as chance raised to the level of a destiny by virtue of a continuous choice, which I like a lot. There's something arbitrary in faith. You're born into Christianity or you come to it because you're not given other information, perhaps. So it's chance raised to the level of a destiny by virtue of a continuous choice. That's a lot of introducing for a tiny little poem. I love only those who seek with lamentation. 
I love only those whose lives events some timeless entire. To weep is to see, to be is to bow. I love only those who know a whole new naivete. Here's a little poem next to it for my wife. How many days I wasted chasing God when I could have been in bed with you. I'm no gardener, but twice I've tried planting a little patch of something back of the predictable. How many days I spent spending life down on my knees in that first dirt. Little grew, and what did tasted vaguely of tar, Tony's auto body, and fear. How many cities, how much botch and rot, how many seductions of sound and circumstance to reach, receive, as in a migraine, a mite of peace. It's not that of two truths you've chosen wrongly, but that in choosing, you've wronged it all. I'm no gardener, but here I am, going at it again in my aimless way of flinging seed, where faith is the failure love demands, and even the wrong sloth rots upward in time. Two more short poems. This is a this one's about a hospital. I spent a lot of my adult life in hospitals. And I finally wanted to, or I didn't really aim to do this. I found myself writing an appreciation of the place. It's called The Keep. They made a place they made of pain exacting the center of the misty city. The moats are metaphorical, the drawbridge always down. All day, every day, at every hour, men and women, children, wheeled into a world that is not the world, but more so, to seam themselves to machines from which the healing bane drips. Screams are rare, but memorable, mirrored in the faces of those who do not make them. Through the rooms, the white minders come and go with their upbeat and their bags of blood. Their aspect is the aspect of souls that, having seen the worst, work forever now to see it through, to see through it. A child on five who ceased to breathe, on ten a collarbone like cooling lava. They made a place they made of pain because of what we know we build the closest we can come to grace. The moats are metaphorical, which means exactly what we let it mean. All day, every day, at every hour. Their aspect 
is the aspect of souls. I thought this book was finished when I wrote this poem. It ended up having another section called Zero after it. I've been obsessed for much of my life. When I was younger, I thought that there would come a time when I would be able to look on life completely, that I would attain some vantage point from which I could look on the whole of my life and it would make a kind of sense. And there would be a through line, a pattern, something coherent. And part of this book was realizing that's not quite the case and never going to be the case. It's called No Omen But Awe. The title comes from Emily Dickinson. I thought it would all resolve one day in diamond time. Light like a gem to lift to the squint as through a jeweler's loop. I thought every facet and flaw, neither facet nor flaw in some final shine. Chance and choice, uncanny cognates, form, fate. Now I am here, no diamond, no time, no omen but awe that a whirlwind could in not cohering cohere. Loss is my gift, bewilderment my bow. Christian Wyman's interview with Commonweal senior editor Matthew Boudway is coming right up. Lexington Theological Seminary exists to equip leaders for ministry to serve in a variety of settings for the Church of today and tomorrow. Flexible, asynchronous online programs allow you to study and complete your assignments around your busy lifestyle. You can start with a certificate and then transfer those credits into one of the master's programs, including the new Master's in Theological Studies degrees in Bilingual Latinx Studies, African American Ministries, and Master of Divinity. Students can also receive credit for prior learning and life experiences. Affordable fees help students graduate without debt. Most receive a 30% tuition waiver. Members of the Disciples of Christ and United Church of Christ receive a waiver of 50%. To receive more information or talk to an admissions specialist or begin your application, go to the website www.lextheo.edu. Well, why don't we start with the most obvious question and the one that's on the cover of the book. Why? Why the title, Zero at the Bone? Where does it come from and how did you decide on this? And then say a little perhaps about the subhead, the, or uh, there's the magazine editor talking, the subtitle, 50 Entries Against Despair. The title comes from a poem by Emily Dickinson and she's referring to a snake and the feeling of that chill that goes through you when you see a snake. And she calls it, gives you a feeling of zero at the bone, but it's also, she's talking about it 
despair. And 50 entries against despair. Like I said, I found that everything I was writing for a number of years was circling around this same obsessive concern. And I was frustrated with genre. And one day it just occurred to me, I wasn't going to write 50 essays. I wasn't going to write 50 poems. Where's the word I need? Entries. And that sounded good. 50 entries against despair. And so once I had that in mind, then I could write towards the book. I'm always halfway through a book before I know what I'm writing. And that's true of every book I've ever written. I don't know. I'm halfway through an essay before I know what it's about. Halfway through a poem before I know anything about it. Sometimes further than that. So I was halfway through this book before I had any idea that it would be the book that it is. There is, as everyone now knows who's listened to your reading, a lot of death in this book. There are the deaths of people close to you, your father, your great-grandmother, other poets who have been important to you. There's the illness that's almost killed you several times. And then, and then it's also true to say that it's not a morbid book. And it's also true that the fear of death in this book is, is not more prominent than the fear of the fears of life, the fear of uncertainty, the fear of vulnerability, the fear of loss of control. And I wonder if you think of faith as an antidote to fear. Does it feel like that to you? Should it feel like that to us, to, to believers? Or is that the wrong way to think of it entirely? Yeah, I think Karl Barth actually said faith is an antidote to fear. Yes, I do think that, but I don't often, I guess they're tangled up for me. There is some way in which the fear that I feel is part of the faith that I feel. Faith for me doesn't eliminate it. It's more that it gives meaning to it. It gives it a direction. And so I don't, I understand what people mean when they say that if you're fearful, then you're not feeling faithful. You're not being faithful. I understand that. But that's not my experience. Many of you probably know that there's a profile of Chris in this week's New Yorker. I think it's still this week's New Yorker by Casey Sepp. And in in that profile, she talks about how the experience of teaching future ministers at a divinity school has strengthened your faith. And I wonder, has the experience of teaching also changed the way you write? I find that teaching has perhaps changed some of the prose somewhat. I have written essays, a couple essays in this book that do come out of classroom experiences. One in particular, A Course on Suffering. I wrote a long essay about that. I taught with the theologian Miroslav Volk. I wouldn't say teaching affects poetry at all, just other than takes time away from poetry. But in another way, yeah, the students have made me, probably has affected the content of what I write about because the students are often, um, they're really fighting for their faith. And if they're not doing that, then they're expressing their faith in ways that I really admire. They're out in the world doing things, easing suffering, becoming ministers, chaplains, working in the arts world or the nonprofit world or something where they're not making a lot of money, let me tell you. And they're doing this with their life. And so the conversations we have in class, they're often quite intense and close to the bone. And that is a very different kind of conversation that I would have if I were teaching in an MFA program in poetry. So yeah, I'm very grateful for that. You also write in this book about 
a, a novel that you started when you were a young man, a novel that was based largely on your own youth. And you worked at it for quite a long time and put it aside thinking you'd come back to it. And then finally decided or accepted that you weren't going to finish the book. And in the meantime, you became a well-known poet. How did you discover that's what you were? That the kind of writing that you wanted to do was poetry, not novel writing, not anything else, not journalism, not writing sermons. Although there's a good, an excellent sermon in the book, by the way. One of my favorite entries is labeled a sermon, and I recommend everyone have a look at it. Did you decide just one day, this is what I meant to do? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I did. And the novel was just a sideline thing. I wasn't planning on being a novelist. I was just going to try it this one time. So I was already deep in. I was probably 30 years old at that point. But when I was, I set out from college, really it happened my senior year in college. I just started doing worse than all my classes because I was just spending all my time on poems. And, but I made a very conscious decision. Yeah, this is what I'm going to do. And I was 20 years old and then spent 10 years doing everything I could to simply give myself time in which to do that, time and space in which to do that, which meant reading even more than it meant writing. And so I would read for hours every day and just work my way through all the old poets and prose writers, but just hours and hours trying to figure out how does one do this thing? And I was in love with a sound. I fell in love with Yeats and Eliot, and I was in love with just this sound that I wanted to make. And to this day, that's how poems occur to me. I'll hear a sound in my mind, and it's a rhythm without words. And then the words, I slowly find the words to fit that rhythm. It's very much like music. Can I imagine how music is composed? But the novel was a completely separate thing and not very noble. I was just a, I think it was okay, the novel. It would have, I was, but honestly, I was trying to make some money. I was broke and I didn't want to teach. I didn't know what, what I was going to do. I wasn't making enough money writing for magazines and stuff. And so I thought, well, I'll write this novel. I didn't finish it. I tell the story in the book. And you also tell the story about why you never published the story as an essay, as it was a kind of memoir until, well, until this book, you set it aside or you withdrew it actually from publication. Could you talk to us a little bit about how that happened? Yeah, I wrote an essay, I, it must be 15 years ago or so now, but <clears throat> which is about incidences in my family history and my father and my sister, a time when she was in prison and very difficult stuff. And I wrote an essay, which I thought was really good. And I was very proud of it. And I even sent it off to a magazine. It was coming out in the magazine. And then I just, I began to think about it and I thought something is wrong with that. And so I withdrew it and I didn't publish it. And I just put it in a drawer for 12 years. And then, and it really bothered me because I thought it was a good essay. But, and then finally, as I was thinking about this book, I turned my attention to that magazine and I figured out what was wrong with it. And what was wrong with it was that I had not given my sister enough life or possibility of life in that essay. And that I hadn't really seen her completely as a person, whole, as a whole person. And so I wrote another essay, which I attached to that essay. And yeah, the, they, I put them together. Well, Harper's actually published the whole thing, but 
but yeah, it's in the book together. Yeah. In entry seven, you write, true hope goes backward as well as forward, can transfigure a past we thought was petrified. It can give voice to certain silences or make us more fluent in silence itself. For the benefit of the, those of us who, well, those of you who haven't read the book, could you say more here about how hope can do that? It seems like a hard paradox. Hope seems essentially future-oriented, but if it can redeem the past too or change the past in some way, that seems like a wonderful promise, if it's true. Yeah, I think it's... Yeah, I think it's almost... It almost has to be that way. I think that, if, that when we have hope, it enables us to transform the past as well, enables us to look differently at the past and say what the example I just gave, that there was a fixed moment of my life and I had a fixed understanding of what these people in my life were like. And the kind of hope that transformed that was a hope in my own life, and it was faith, and it was going forward. It was a faith of my own life, and what does my own life look with this faith? But it also went backward, and it changed what was in the past. It gave me a different vision for reading events that had happened. It enabled me to see that in a completely different way and thereby changed going forward. So that's a very good instance of it changing the past. I can think of other examples. My wife has just written a book, a great book. It's called Holler, A Poet Among Patriots. And one of the stories that she tells in that book is of there's an African-American side to our family and it's her family. It's the descendants of slaves and her family were the slave owners. The black side of the family contacted the white side of the family at one point about 30 years ago and wanted to meet. And this is all before I'm on the scene. And that happened. Now we have, every year we have a family reunion with all of them and it's like a hundred of them and four of us now. And we have a family reunion down there every summer. It's too long a story to tell. I recommend you get my wife's book. But that's an example of a kind of hope for the future transforming what happened in the past. And the, pat, the story in this past is very complicated and not all horrible. There are good aspects to it. And, but it all involved a kind of hope projecting forward that changed the path. You have a great quotation from the great Basil Bunting in this book. Reading and silence is the source of half the misconceptions that have caused the public to distrust poetry. Without the sound, the reader looks at the lines as he looks at prose, seeking a meaning. Prose exists to convey meaning, and no meaning such as prose conveys can be expressed as well in poetry. That is not poetry's business. So, so what is poetry's business if not to convey meaning? Well, that's one of poetry's business is to convey meaning, because certainly there are obvious truths and deep truths conveyed in poetry but another is to enact meaning to it's almost as if some poems make a place through which meaning through which truth or meaning can flow so that it's not static and there's a poem by for example by robert hayden don't know robert hayden where he talks about his he was the first African-American poet laureate, actually. Sundays, too, my father got up early in the blue-black cold, and, and he talks about his father taking care of his, taking care of the fire, 
polishing his shoes and says, what did I know? What did I know of love's lonely and austere offices? Austere and lonely offices, I think it is. What did I know? What did I know of love's austere and lonely offices? And so what's happening in that poem is different truths moving through there at the same time, not being stuck. One, the truth of that this, this was a difficult place. He has a line saying, fearing the chronic angers of that house. It's, his father was not just this beneficent caretaker, fearing the chronic angers of that house. But then also the love that's being expressed by polishing these boots, taking care of a child. There are some forms of love that may not look like it to outsiders. Some people are not able to express love in any other way but physical things. And that becomes a language between people. In that poem, that's what happened there. But my point is that these different meanings or truths are contained in the poem and released by the poem. That There's not one thing that you can say. So that's one example. Another is that you can have a poem that's like a charm. It's like a pure charm where you can just get lost in the sound. When kingfishers catch fire, dragonflies draw flame. As tumbled over roundy whim and stones ring, like each tucks, like each tuck string tells, each hung bell swung finds tongue to fling out broad its name. Each mortal thing does one thing and the same, deals out that being indoors, each one dwells, selves, goes itself, myself, it speaks and spells, crying, what I do is me, for that I came. Beautiful, just a spell cast. And you can trace the meaning in that, but it is just, a, it also just works as a spell. So I think that's what I'm, that's what Bunting is talking about there. Don't read poems in silence. At least whisper them to yourself so that you can hear the music of them. Could I ask you to read a short poem from the book? It's entry 47, close to the end. The title of the poem is Woman with Tomato. Woman with Tomato. I actually wrote this after a conversation with my wife when I was getting very complicated, so you'll see why. Men want mystery when the meanings are plain. Never a bird by chance or a yawn, a yawn. The very cur can't beg or bolt the yoke without mourning being a boil with creation. God forbid a meager leaf should golden. Men want life and love to spill out of themselves unless the love's too voluptuously alive, of course. Want roots to clutch and buds to bell. Want want. You wonder why I salt my slices one by one, why I sit alone in my slice of sun. Men want mystery when the meanings are plain. Christian Wyman's new book is Zero at the Bone, 50 Entries Against Despair, and it's available now from FSG. You can read an excerpt from it about the poet Lucille Clifton on our website, and be on the lookout for a review of the book on our website coming soon. This is Dominic Preziosi for the Commonweal Podcast. The Commonweal Podcast is produced by Associate Editor Griffin Olenek and the Commonweal staff in partnership with Sandberg Media. Wally Boudway composed our theme music and David Dalt did the editing. Remember, if you like what you hear on the Commonweal podcast, please tell your friends and family to listen as well. 
and rate and review us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.